This is another iRaw podcast. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a podcast of climate ecology and animal justice, where we use books to think about our environmental crisis and what might come next. Today we will be talking about one of my favorite novelists, Virginia Woolf. Now, whether you've read all of her books or never read anything by her at all, I hope this can still be a useful conversation. We start with some context about the modernist movement in fiction, some aspects of Virginia Woolf's personal life growing up, um, before moving into some of her work, and in particular how she shows attentiveness to non-human animals, and also a sense of connection between not only humans and but the rest of the living world. And I offer plenty of, of quotes um, from her different books uh, so that you get a sense of her writing and, and what I'm talking about when we talk about these things. If you like, I've linked a short essay by Virginia Woolf called The Death of the Moth, Death of a Moth, in the episode description. If you like, you can read that to get a sense of her views on this stuff as well. Um, the way she talks about the, the moth as, as part of this network of life. Um, and to also help guide this conversation, I have invited Bonnie Kime Scott, who is a professor emerita of English and Women's Studies. Um, she was previously at San Diego State University and the University of Delaware. She's the author and editor of multiple books on modernist literature and feminism and uh, ecology, and one of her books is In the Hollow of the Wave, Virginia Woolf and Modernist Uses of Nature. We also talk about some of Woolf's engagement with the social of her day, feminism, um, she was very anti-war. She also wrote an essay that Bonnie brings up about an effort to ban feathers from exotic birds that women used to wear in their hats at the time, where Virginia is sympathetic to the idea that we should ban the birds, uh, ban the feathers, um, but also a bit skeptical of why we are why the movement was focusing on a luxury of women and ignoring all the ways that men who did the hunting and and fishing and such were um, harming other animals as well. But for the most part, we stay to her fiction um, and talk a little bit toward the end of, of what we can learn as, as sort of a contemporary um, movement drawing on ecology and, and feminism. As a bit of background to prepare for this interview, I've read some of Bonnie's writings, but I also have just been a lifelong Virginia Woolf, or not lifelong, but a longtime Virginia Woolf fan. Um, I, I first discovered her, not discovered, she had been discovered by others, but I first started to read her in college. Um, I made my way through most of her novels, um, as well as some of her nonfiction, and then more recently, uh, with a group of friends, we did a Virginia Woolf book club, um, where we'd meet once a month or so to discuss um, one or more of her books, and we went through her whole oeuvre. Um, and while I was doing this is is really while I was starting to pay more attention to how themes of non-human nature and animals uh, showed up in fiction. And so while I was doing that, I, I just kind of took a lot of photos and, and flagged parts of her books that um, seemed to be representing these themes. And I drew on a lot of these notes that I made um, for this interview. Oh, before we get started... As always, please consider supporting this podcast on Patreon. Please consider joining the Storytelling Animals Book Club. Um, we are not reading Virginia Woolf this month, but we are reading um, Appleseed by Matt Bell. Um, we will be discussing February 28th. It's a work of fiction that, much like Virginia Woolf, I really like. Uh, so please 
consider joining us. You have about a month to read it, a little more. Um, and also, happy birthday, Virginia Woolf, January 25th. Hi, I'm here with uh, Bonnie Kime Scott. Um, she's the author of In the Hollow of the Wave, Virginia Woolf and Modernist Uses of Nature. And she's here to talk about uh, Virginia Woolf and Modernist novels with me. Um, Bonnie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Delightful to be here. Um, yeah, so first, uh, I'm just kind of curious how you got started, became interested in this question of uh, how non-human nature shows up in Virginia Woolf's writing. Well, I think the natural world is an essential part of my life. And it, in modernist studies, as I came up in them, um, there was a great deal of emphasis on how um, the mechanical urban war uh, world was central to modernism and how it was depicted. But I always saw at the edges um, lots of presence of natural characters even um, within these works or a certain discomfort with nature or whatever, which was an interesting sideline for me. One of the nice things about, um, well, and it was a challenge too, the period I've gone through in academe, and I've, I was in it for quite a long time, I'm retired now, um, is that I got to reinvent myself a number of times. Um, feminism came upon the scene and I hopped into that because it seemed to me, boy, that's been there all the time. Um, and then as we became more interested in ecological questions, um, I could range into sort of eco-feminist concerns. And that's what lets me land um, in this wonderful world of thinking about Virginia Woolf and a number of other writers um, within the context of nature. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up. Um, I've always had a passion for two modernist writers, um, James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. Um, and Virginia Woolf, I had to discover on my own because when I was going through school, she wasn't on syllabi. Um, but um, she was an amazing discovery. Uh, it is a, often a pretty good teamwork between feminist studies, um, which have looked at ways that um, women are associated with nature and men with culture. Um, among some of the observations, and you can find lots of evidence of this in literature and politics and all sorts of things. Um, so that connection um, that people who are interested in studying kind of the rights of animals parallel with people interested in the rights of women um, also works pretty well. Yeah. So maybe for those who, who don't know their Virginia Woolf from their James Joyce or who are relatively new to this, uh, just to help situate what is kind of the, you write it, the subtitle of your book is Modernist Uses of Nature. What is the modernist novel? What period is this? Right. Uh, and what, okay. <laughs> so that, that's moved around a little bit um, over the years, too. It used to be considered um, kind of, oh, the 19-teens um, up to World War II. Um, recently, um, if you kind of look at the experimental methods, um, the interest in consciousness um, and such that modernist works pursue. You can find early evidence of it even back into the 19th century and extending well into the 20th century. So um, the time span has expanded. Um, but authors like Lawrence and Wolf and Gertrude Stein 
Juna Barnes is less well-known, but she's somebody that's been important to me as well. T.S. Eliot among the poets, Ezra Pound, um, H.D., um, a woman writer. Um, these are all considered modernist writers. Um, there used to be something considered high modernism versus more popular writers, but even those boundaries have become more interestingly blurred as time has gone on, and people have become, I think, more conscious of kind of the political the political questions behind who gets selected to be in a canon of a given period. So modernism is a topic that's moved around um, in its definition, and I've enjoyed participating in that. Yeah, and obviously this is a hard question because of what you said, that the definition is always moving, but other than time period, is there anything that you see kind of uniting that group of writers you named? Um, interest in consciousness. Okay. Um, how we think, how we observe the natural world even, or the world around us. Um, stream of consciousness is a term that um, is often used in conjunction with modernism. Um, and that kind of thing um, is distinct from the more naturalistic and realistic writing that pursued it, uh, that pre preceded it. Um, there often is yeah, kind of a... a Rebellion Against Victorian Values and Attitudes in Modernist Writing. Okay, so Virginia Woolf is growing up in the late 1800s. What, and, and as we'll discuss shortly um, in her writing, she'll end up being very attentive to other animals, non-human life forms. Um, and what do you see as some of the influences on her, either specifically or just that were in the zeitgeist that may have helped cultivate these feelings? Well, her family is interesting. Um, I think her her father, Sir Leslie Stephen, is a, really a, a Victorian period figure. Um, and um, he was a rather elderly father to have had Virginia Woolf. But um, the natural history movement that um, really took root in the late Victorian era um, is something that was brought to Virginia Woolf's home as a young girl. So... Um, among the things they the kids did together, and there were four closely bonded kids, um, is that they collected insects. And they could be, she could be kind of um, satirical of their own efforts, um, comparing it to great hunters and so on, going after moths and butterflies. Um, but also she, she has some sensitivity to the sacrifice of animals that was involved in that. But she participated actively in collecting moths. Um, and, um, it was a complicated family. There was a set of older children because both parents had been married before, um, and her mother had a set of older children and some of them were hunters. And then the suitors for her sister, for example, um, tended to hunt. So there were all of these influences and she was reflecting upon, um, them, I think all along, she had lots of pets, um, her uh, godfather, um, um, James Russell Lowell, brought her a caged bird. She had a squirrel that she let run around her room. Um, one of her first purchases with her own money was a Persian cat. But then she really settled into having a succession of dogs. And um, I think that lasted throughout her life. Um, she eventually married Leonard Wolfe, who had been... Um, a typical British thing for men to do was to go and work in empire. And he was working in Ceylon um, and he had lots of pets there. 
including pretty exotic ones. Um, but he was he loved dogs once he got back to England. Um, he had to sometimes assist people, even protect them because they went to Salon to hunt things. Um, and uh, it's a kind of mixed record. He probably kept animals chained like an, a monkey outside his place in the Salon. And maybe they didn't have um, the best of survival rates. But um, he did reflect a lot upon animals, and and there was a constant succession of dogs um, with that couple. Um, and I think you know some of these dogs certainly helped her write about um, particularly dogs, but lots of animals. Um, she writes about moss. She writes about birds. She writes about um, dogs quite a bit. Um, and insects of all sorts, so um, they can have symbolic values. That's another aspect of modernism that's pretty strong. Um, so lots of animals, lots of possibilities in that area. Yeah. Um, so one place to start in her work um, might be a passage I was thinking about from the novel Orlando, um, I think the late 1920s. And so in one early scene, the hero who at the time was a young man named Orlando, he will remain neither young nor a man, <laughs> um, but he is writing poetry about nature and he's looking outside the window at the real thing and he finds he can't write anymore once he sees a tree outside. Mm -hmm. and quote, quote, green in nature is one thing, green in literature another. Nature and letters seem to have a natural antipathy, bringing them together and they tear each other to pieces. So. On the one hand, maybe this is a bit of a joke because Orlando is not maybe the most focused of writers. Um, but is there, you know, what attitude is she pointing to with this idea of nature and letters being in, in tension with each other? I think it's a huge challenge to to get at nature, I suppose, in writing. That tree is very important to Orlando, by the way. Um, and throughout um, the lifetime of Orlando in that book from a kind of callow young man who of great privilege um, to a woman um, in her middle age, late middle age, um, keeps writing about a tree that's on an estate that she lives on. Um, so the challenge isn't one that she gives up easily. And she writes and rewrites and rewrites. And maybe that just shows um, how we change and how we perceive things over time but also um, the challenge of being a writer. Yeah, I, trees are such a, a common theme in her fiction. Where when I kind of first fell in love with her, I was reading Mrs. Dalloway for the first time in college. And um, you have a character, Septimus Warren Smith, who's been traumatized by the war and is losing his mind in a lot of ways. Um, but he has this revelation Trees are alive. Men not, must not cut down trees. Or the supreme secret must be told to the cabin. <laughs> First, the trees are alive. Next, there is no crime. Next, love, universal love. And there's there's lots of characters who who love trees. Have um, in Jacob's room, someone has quote a rush of friendship for stones and grasses. What? Yeah. What is the significance of kind of this feeling of fellowship between humans and in plants. Uh, <laughs> this is something that really interests me, and and I've been 
following the work of Susan Samard and the, the mycorrhizal fungal networks that um, she helped us understand that trees communicate with other trees and so on. Um, that kind of networking between different species, like um, the, the trees cooperating with fungi in the soil nearby them. Um, this is pretty recent stuff, but I really do think when Orlando lies beneath that tree eventually on the roots, you do see that kind of connection between species with even just people and trees. Um, she does lots of wonderful appreciations of the lifespan of a tree, um, eventually having it come into furniture, which maybe isn't the best fate. <laughs> um, I, I think that um, that's a very rich route to tap um, in Virginia Woolf and one that I'm continuing to pursue. I've always been interested in networking and so many of our metaphors um, for networking really do come from the natural world um, and roots and stems and leaves. Um, there was a wonderful sense of personal order to be achieved often by children um, in her own account of her childhood, a sketch of the past. She remembers having a sense of the wholeness of a flower. And she gives that same perception to a little boy um, in her last novel, Between the Acts. Um, and there is a sense of understanding attachment that I'm holding a flower. I'm in this world with this object that um, is um, a holistic unifier of the universe around me, maybe a way of beginning to make sense of where we are positioned in a world. Yeah, I think there are there are many poignant moments in her novels that are about how difficult it can be to connect and the failure of speech to, you know, people talking past each other and not able to understand what each other really feel and mean. Um, but also in, you know, in that same breath, the other most poignant moments are conveying the ways in which we are all connected both among humans and among all living things and all parts of the earth. Um, there's a quote in the waves where she says we exist not only separately, but in undifferentiated blobs of matter. Um, you mentioned, though, that you know she loves animals in particular and, and approaches them um, throughout her novels and, and nonfiction writing as well. She has this brief essay about the death of a moth. Yes, it's a and beautiful one. She writes about the moth, the same energy which inspired the rooks, the plowmen, the horses, and even, it seemed, the lean bareback downs sent the moth fluttering from side to side of a square of the window. Yes, you almost live through the lifespan of that moth in a day. And of course, moths don't live very long, um, as opposed to butterflies. Um, well, I guess it depends on the species. But yes, the death of the moth is, I think, one of her most beautiful pieces. But moths also um, reflect a kind of spirituality. And that's another ordering sense that um, she was agnostic, but I think as spiritual, the most spiritual she gets is when she senses these connections with the other living world um, that that she is a part of. Um, yes, that's that's a favorite quotation of mine too. Um, the death of the moth. There's like the shared life force that manifests in you and me and the moth. Um, and but maybe the most obvious example of her, as you put it in your book, crossing the species barrier is uh, Flush, which is a semi-fictionalized biography of 
a dog named Flush, belonging to the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's based in part on Browning's letters and diaries. Um, and the dog is really the main character. We spend uh, most of the short novel inside the dog's head with the dog's thoughts and experiences and, and consciousness. Well, Time. in a way, this was a love note to um, a woman she loved very much, Vita Sackville West. And Vita Sackville West stands behind Orlando as well. Um, and was very much an outdoors person. Um, they, um, Vita Sackville West gave Virginia Woolf a Cocker Spaniel. Um, Flush is a Cocker Spaniel. And um, Virginia Woolf had pet names for a number of people. I think animals sometimes allowed her to communicate even um, about sexuality with people because it was less embarrassing to talk about an animal as having certain urges than maybe directly herself. Um, Flush is um, interestingly adaptive as a dog. Um, he, um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning is not supposed to be his first um, person. Um, he um, actually was uh, another woman's um, pet. And in that stage in his life, he really loved to rove the moors and be outside. Um, but then when he came to live in London... Um, he very much adapted to the scene around him and what it was like um, in an invalid's room. Um, and gradually you get the sense that Flush realizes that um, there's a consciousness in this woman that, that he can share in. And I think it's kind of interesting how we say people and their dogs begin to look alike. Um, there is a, a more profound identification between humans and dogs perhaps than any animal on earth um the whole process of domesticating dogs or dog dogs deciding to live off of us um that donna haraway describes in when species meet um is very much um evident in the different life phases that flush goes through Eventually, the Brownings escape a kind of very controlled environment enforced by Elizabeth Barrett Browning's father. Um, they go to Italy, and then Flush once again can interact um, across maybe breeding barriers and, and so on with the, the, the dogs just roaming the, the countryside in, in Italy, where they eventually settle. So um, Flush is a very adaptable dog. Um, one of the things that Virginia Woolf does say about limitations of dogs, um, I think this actually comes in Orlando, um, most blatantly stated, is that um, the one they can do all sorts of wonderful things in the environment, like smelling better than we do and wagging their tails and learning tricks and so on. But speak, they cannot. And of course, language, spoken language, um, is tremendously important to somebody who is a writer like Virginia Woolf. Um, she, and she did sort of hold that as a distinction um, that she never quite got over. Um, but in many other ways, dogs understood her. She understood them. Bar Browning meshed far better with this dog than she did with the, the patriarchal um, father that um, was the main enforcer of limitations on her life. Yeah, one of the funny aspects of that passage in Orlando you you flagged is that she does raise that animals can do all these things, you know, wag their tails, jump, paw, whatever, but can't speak. And but then she says that Orlando feels that 
the people at the parties that she goes to, they too wag their tails and jump and paw and slobber, but talk to cannot. <laughs> yes, we're, there are limitations in many of us as well. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, the she's she's attentive to to Flush's well-being throughout these life transitions in a way that I think is um, remarkable because, you know, on the surface, Flush is somewhat pampered and, you know, a superficially luxurious life for of a lapdog. Um, but you really feel that Flush is making a sacrifice to, in the indoor period, um, while they're still in England, you know, that he's not able to go outside and run around and kind of do dog things. And then when he is moves to Italy and is able to do that, it's so it's so delightful. And I, and I think there's a gendered element of her attentiveness to other animals as well. For instance, to the lighthouse, uh, Mrs. Ramsay is is so genuinely saddened that her, her son Jasper likes to hunt birds. Mm-hmm. And don't you think they mind, she said to Jasper, having their wings broken? But for Jasper, it's just like birds don't feel. Um, and in Three Guineas, uh, and you mentioned this in your book, too, that which is a nonfiction of a sort um wolf reflects that the vast majority of birds and beasts have been killed by by men not by women so how do how does her proto-environmentalism or whatever you want to call it her concern for other animals also relate to her feminism? well sometimes there is a corrective there um there's a fairly well-known essay by her on the plumage bill and um the author of um this diatribe against women really for wanting fancy plumes in their hats is something that she responds to um, because she really quite starkly brings up the conditions in which those birds are hunted by men. And um, the plumage enterprise feeds an economy that doesn't flatter women um, so much. Um, She ends up supporting the plumage bill and, and wanting to, you know, women's hats used to be decorated with plumes that were taken from quite exotic birds and and like snowy egrets nearly went extinct because they were so hunted. Um, But there are other more exotic birds in South America and other places that were were greatly affected by this. Um, So sometimes feminism um, has is a corrective to even points that are being made by um, would be environmentalists. And I think that kind of dialogue is a good thing. Um, to have going on. But um, I think she very often does think about um, children, particularly taking off the wings of birds and, uh, and insects as well. Um, and, you know, very, her characters are, are very aware of cruelty to animals. I think um, her diaries are wonderful to read and the essays are quite good too. But the diaries, you often get observations of this sort. Um, that are environmental in their consciousness. She um, wanted to save the countryside from development um, well into her life when the wolves had a country place to live, monk's house, and needed to get out of London during the war, of course, but quite enjoyed having um, that alternative to the city, even though she loved cities and found lots of nature um, in them. But um, yeah, she really was aware of ways that um, the environment was being destroyed in her own age, and um, she wanted to prevent that. There's some sense that, um, I mean, she had some privilege. She wasn't terribly wealthy, but um, 
the the sense that um, very wealthy people had taken up so much of um, the countryside and, and shouldn't other people be able to get out there in addition to her own class. I think um, you, you, you sometimes have to think about, okay, we've got lots of things going here. We have um, difference in class as well as um, difference in species going on. But um, she loved to go on walks. She almost always brought back an observation from nature on those walks. Um, her brother became quite the um, sketcher of birds. Um, he died young, um, but she um, certainly enjoyed um, all of his pursuits. And, and little boys used to collect eggs of exotic birds. Um, that's something that uh, still is going on, I believe, um, in England, um, threatening um, species survival that are kind of fragile right now. But she had characters who were aware of that as a really a big problem in her day. Uh, the the natural history connection, the um, the sense of getting out and walking distances and always bringing back something observed, I think, is, is very precious to her and really fed into her environmental concerns. Um, I think it's interesting, Leonard Wolf um, lived longer than she did, certainly, and he was very aware of how much noisier the countryside used to be with insects and birds um, years ago and how much quieter it had become. Um, I think he lived to read Silent Spring. Um, but that sensibility, I think, is something that they shared, and that's why they loved going out into the country. You mentioned uh, Leonard living to see or living to read Silent Spring. Um, Wolf was familiar with American environmental writers like Emerson and yes. Thoreau. Um, she wrote, she had kind of a, a mixed review of Emerson and a more positive one of Thoreau. That's right. Um, I, she was apt to find limitations in. in in him as well, but I think she would really love the fact that he he was a very keen observer, and she could certainly appreciate um, his renditions of nature. Um, I think him as a perceiver of nature, she very much appreciated and probably benefited from. So you mentioned too that um, you know there's all these issues of class and and gender that are interacting with environmental issues as well. She's also concerned about um, war and empire. Where does that aspect of her, her worldview fit into all this? I'm really not certain that I see that as a major strain. Um, she she certainly equated the, um, the pursuit of war as a more masculine thing. Um, she was in the midst of pacifists who decided instead of going to war, they would work on the land um, during World War I. Um, much of the Bloomsbury group um, did that. In terms of empire, she certainly um, thinks about ways that uh, empires co-opted people and animals abroad, but... Um, and, and makes a mockery of the Navy at one point and so on. I, I suppose um, war is a patriarchal thing in her imagination. Um, and it certainly is destructive of, of land and, and animals and, and nature. With that, then, what, um, 
What are meaningful connections that you see between Virginia Woolf and contemporary feminist and ecological movements, and and maybe where where is she missing stuff, or where does she is she bringing stuff? To the well, table? one of the things I I would like to mention is that when you start being aware of women of her own era, um, there is a very rich strain of um, writing about nature. Um, it, it's true of H.D. It's true. Juna Barnes um, had a wonderful sense of writing about animals throughout her life, including into an, an animal alphabet um, that she did for children. But um, she she very much had characters enacting their own participation in animal roles and so on. Um, so this this was a, a fairly um, rich strain to pursue um, in that direction. I think that um, modern ecofeminism um, really flows pretty nicely from Virginia Woolf. Um, I have mentioned um, already the the Donna Haraway connection um, that um, seems to speak to texts like Flush and um, this this communication across species that that Virginia Woolf is very interested in. Um, I think one of the areas that Woolf is not as strong in is thinking about um, classes other than her own of women. Um, There have been critiques of ways that servants' roles are represented in Virginia Woolf, um, or that they are more apt to be equated with animals than, um, than perhaps Upper class, although she sees aspects of animals in all sorts of her characters um, of all classes, I might have to say. But I think her class awareness, um, very occasional anti-Semitism, the um, tapping of um, the resources of writers um, from other parts of the world, um, certainly were limited. And um, modern day ecofeminism really does try to think about women's working with nature, um, being very responsible very often for preparation of food and cultivation of food, um, being very effective in hunter-gatherer societies and so on. These are dimensions that aren't so present in Virginia Woolf. So are you at all familiar with uh, The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh? No. Okay, so... I bring it up. It's a, a nonfiction book by novelist Amitav mm-hmm. Ghosh came out a few years ago um, where he makes this argument essentially that the, the bourgeois realist novel um, has can essentially failed to adequately address climate change and ecology throughout its history, in part by its, its focus on the interior life of, and actions of, of humans to the exclusion of non-human beings and non-human agency. It's an interesting book because I find kind of the broad strokes argument compelling, and yet I also find myself thinking of a million yeah, counterexamples. Yeah, as you were saying that, first of all, you said the realist novel, and we're not talking about realist novels with Virginia Woolf. <laughs> we're talking about a modernist novel. <laughs> um, but the the idea I, I want to bring out in it is um, kind of that he 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 wants to see more of the non-human world as as an actor, as an agent within. Um, within fiction mm-hmm. and one you know we see that in many of the examples that um that we've talked about with with flush uh for instance um but another 
I have a novel I wanted to bring up from Wolf is Between the Acts, which you briefly mentioned, um, which came out posthumously after her death. Um, and so in this novel, uh, this community is putting on an outdoor play. Um, and in the play, non-human nature keeps yes, intervening. Cows and all sorts of things. Yes. Blowing cows. Exactly. A sudden rainstorm. The cows. And it's not the intent of the director, but it, for the most part, ends up adding to the effect of the play. And the you know, the director loves it when the rain comes, I think, uh, or I forget exactly. But um, and afterward, characters are reflecting on it. And there's a, a reverend who kind of gives a, a speech after the play. And he's saying that, I, you know, I think part of what the play is trying to tell us is that nature, too, takes mm-hmm. its part. And so, yeah, I, you know, you mentioned that she's not a strictly realist novel because of this stream of consciousness style representing kind of the flow of people's innermost thoughts. Um, but how what role is there for of non-human agency in a style that superficially you would think would be so wrapped up in human consciousness maybe you see there's a wonderful variety of human Mm -hmm. consciousness in between the acts for example i mean you've got the um this sort of miss miss swithin um the the elderly woman who communes with fish (laughs) in the pond um and is imagining, oh, mm-hmm. when England was attached to the mainland and, and, and all sorts of creatures that are no longer with us were roaming across land. Fabulous imagination that sort of escapes and is its own, is its own narrative. And then we've got Bart Oliver, the well, I guess the father-in-law of um, the character whose consciousness you're in a whole lot, um, who has been an empire and remembers... Um, shooting parties um, so many of the, of the men as I was said from this set like Leonard Wolf served um, in India or various other places of that sort I I think that Miss um, Latrobe who is doing this play is a lesbian um, kind of a, a marginal figure um, in the society and I suppose you know the the friendliness to lesbian identity is is a, a strain in Virginia. We haven't mentioned it at all, um, but uh, she's aware of, of wanting her play to work and realizing um, that that nature does play a part. Um, I think there are moments when things aren't going so well and the cows kind of save her. <laughs> so um, I I I think that. Um, Nature is constructed in all sorts of ways by all sorts of characters in this novel, including the little boy who sees the flower complete um, at the very beginning. Um, there's an, a fantasy um, of a, a burdened donkey that represents her own situation to Issa, the, um, the lead young woman um, of, of this novel. So I would argue you go at nature in all sorts of ways. Some of them imagine Nary and humans constructed. Um, some of them people are attuned to and aware of. Um, they're wonderful birds even late in the day. Um, and a comparison of, of people to um, fighting um, by the foxes or wolves, or they're foxes, I believe, at the end, um, in turn, in a, a couple and how, how they are getting along with one another. Um, that there's just tremendous variety and you can be, you, you almost begin to assess the people in the novel by the way they um, represent nature, or at least I do. It's a, it's a neat way to read that non 
novel. <laughs> yeah, I, in college I wrote a paper about the novel that Between the Acts, and one of the fun parts too is Mrs. Swithin, who you mentioned, an older woman, is she loves reading this yes. outline of history. Like a, it's a like a Darwinian essentially um, history of you know past exotic creatures, barking monsters, the Iguanodon, uh, from whom presumably we descend. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I, I love that there's kind of this difficulty of separating the present from the past and the human from the non-human in that novel. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, you, you know, we've talked about living things a lot, but even into the lighthouse, uh, in the time passes kind of intermediate section, even the wind is sometimes treated almost animistically as almost, almost with intention and curiosity exploring the, empty mm-hmm. house the drafty house and yeah i, I guess is there um no we haven't talked about time is passes there the middle section of to the lighthouse there's so much we could talk about <laughs> let's end on, on yes. time passes um and i suppose this is this is the novel that um you really do get the sense of, of both gender and war, war being paralleled because there's i i just i will never forget that you you get very much into the consciousness of a woman named Mrs. Ramsey. Um, and then this early passage with young children and, and um, philosopher husband and, and Mrs. Ramsey out in the countryside on the seaside um, vacation house and so on. Um, all sorts of um, explorations of nature in that um, it reflects a, a summer holiday that the, the, Stephen children had, um, Virginia Stephen um, as a child. Um, but um, then you get to this middle passage and it it's just describing years of, of nature working away at, and it's kind of interesting how, how quickly houses deteriorate <laughs> left to nature and, and unattended. Skip ahead 15 to 20 seconds to avoid learning a key event from To the Lighthouse if you have not already read. Um, and then suddenly you said you're told that um, let's see the eldest daughter dies in childbirth, the eldest son dies in war, and Mrs. Ramsey dies. Um, what a shock! <laughs> um, it it really is um, reflective of of what we're beginning to discover that nature has a way of reclaiming vacated spaces, whether it be post Chernobyl or um, how how quickly it is in a total variety of species recovery but but it is a, a reassertion of nature taking over um if we could just leave the scene for a little while yeah that, that reminds me of a a passage from jacob's room that i i jotted down before this where uh blame it or praise it there is no denying the wild horse in us to gallop intemperately fall on the sand tired out to feel the earth spin to have positively a rush of friendship for stones and grasses as if humanity were over and as for men and women let them go hang there's no getting over the fact that this desire seizes seizes mm. us pretty often mm. and yet you know time passes is, is a section of the lighthouse where the humanity seeds center stage for yeah for 20 pages she does wonderful depictions of gardens throughout her works and and here we have this mishmash of <laughs> cultivars and and um and natives um mixing and um i think sort of rewilding um is a current term that we use um and that's a deliberate 
effort to some extent, but nature does it on its own to some extent. Well, maybe last question. Uh, if if someone either has, has never read Virginia Woolf or not for a while uh, and enjoyed this conversation, where would you uh, recommend they start? I um, I hesitate to do this because I, I my first impulse is um, to the lighthouse. But I okay. suggested that to my son, and and he never saw. That. <laughs> he liked other things that she did, but you know, you can't guarantee that there's one solution for all sorts of people. It's probably better to know the person. Um, um, sometimes it might be good to just point um people to start with the death of the moth or an essay, which you know isn't the first thing you think of. But do you like this short sample of what this author does? Well, if you like that, let's try this and um. It's probably I, the Voyage Out is their first novel. I don't don't think I would read that first. Um, but I, yeah, I might send people still to <laughs> to the lighthouse. I'll put a link to Death of the Moth in the uh, episode description, so people can click on that and read that if you're interested. I reread it for the first time uh-huh. years before this interview and was blown away. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add? Well, it's we delightful to meet you. I I looked at some, your profile on the web. I I love the kind of work that you're engaged with, and I don't think enough of us can be at this point. Um, so good on you. Well, I appreciate that, and appreciate your work as well, and appreciate, of course, Virginia Wolf. Um, so thanks okay, so much for coming on the show. Okay, thank you for inviting me. Hi. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed that, even partially so much as I did. Um, and as always, feel free to like, subscribe, leave a review, share on social media, send it to a friend or family member. Um, any help getting the word out would be great. Um, you can also sign up for my free weekly newsletter, um, and there's a link to that in the episode description. And also consider a small monthly donation on Patreon to help keep this podcast going. Um, uh, next episode will be episode 40, the season finale of season one, that's coming in early February. And after that, I'll take a month or two hiatus to, to start prepping for season two, you know, reading those books, doing those interviews, um, and be back soon with more uh, content for you. Um, so like I said, please consider that small monthly donation to help make season two as good as it can be. Um, and please consider joining the Storytelling Animals Book Club. Uh, join on a, a more permanent basis. You can subscribe on Patreon. Uh but all subscribers to the free email newsletter, link in the episode description, um, can attend one meeting as a uh, free trial. Our next meeting is February 28th, Tuesday, at 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 Eastern, to discuss the recent climate fiction novel, Appleseed by Matt Bell. Um, there's a lot of interesting themes there about geoengineering and tech, tech CEOs and techno-optimists and agriculture and control and manifest destiny and all sorts of good or not good stuff. Um, So yeah, please consider joining us um, and please consider having a nice day. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!